HTML is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is the true story of five assholes picked to live in a spaceship. Named after a prepubescent boy's fever dream. And wait, that can't be right. Yeah. Uh, no, no, that's not what we're talking about. Oh, right, no, this is supposed to be Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, same difference though, right? Okay, well, this is already off to a rollicking start. So, before we even get into this movie, I do want to open up, but there's something about the ship being named after a prepubescent boy's fever dream. So much of this movie is like little kitty wish fulfillment, but projected onto a hypersexed male who has to quip all the time. I have a few things to say about that. So many things. Here's what I want to say is the first note that I wrote down when doing the watch of Guardians of the Galaxy. I looked up specifically how old James Gunn himself was in 1988, and he was 22 years old. So a lot of the pop culture and Peter Quill being this 80s kid who never grew up is viewed through the lens of a man who himself at that time was in his early 20s. So that sets a lot of uh, context for a lot of the things that we see for Peter, because I realized right before we started recording this that Peter is eight years old in the opening. So a lot of his like sexual references to Earth are a little strange. He's nowhere near an age where he would be thinking about that in that sort of way. So I need to break in because I finally have a place to put it on this network. Finally, I've been waiting to tell this story forever. Kevo makes a really interesting point because, don't get me wrong, I do think we are all kind of, in many ways, imprinted on by the sexual things that occur to us in our most formative moments. And I do think that Peter is given a lot to deal with as a child. He's forced to reckon life and death as a little kid. And I do believe there are a number of people who experience sorts of awakenings in different ways and memories that get locked away in different ways. So. That the last time Peter is on Earth, when he's eight, those are the things that he develops sexual attraction around. Okay, sure. I mean, he's an adult and he only has so many memories of human-looking people. Yeah, not awful, just, you know, questionable. Continue. And so there was one time, at one point, Marvel Comics had a back cover ad that ah. was... Yeah, you knew this was coming. They had a back cover ad that was this unbelievably hot dude that was also a centaur in the shower, and it was for Old Spice. And I very specifically remember somebody around that time writing into Dan Savage that they had a mermaid fetish now from uh, being a child. And one of the first things they ever jacked it to was something Daryl Hannah and mermaid. And I just remember thinking to myself, if it's not even in that article, I remember specifically thinking to myself, there's going to be a lot of dudes with like horse things because of this ad and they won't even know where it's from. And what's really funny is I, I'm not even saying that we know a lot of dudes that have horse fetishes, but at comic conventions, we've had conversations with people about that ad and people remember it and how explicitly sexual it came across and how like, you know, the way that the dude is standing there, like it's, it's very presented and on display and he's not, you know, 
over-exaggeratedly muscled, so it's a little more human in that regard, even for the fact that it's a fucking centaur standing there. It's a really interesting conversation to discuss how these things all imprint, and I do think it's a really good idea, or at least there's something of value in talking about how we're all kind of imprinted on at different ages, so I don't know that I so much have a problem with Peter being imprinted by that age. I do think there's something really interesting about that that's what a man who was 20 something you know almost 20 years older is imprinting on there's something very removed from actually being eight and these things imprinting on you that i feel james gunn brings to this he does bring an adult looking back at this era sort of attitude that is not genuine to an eight-year-old like i enjoy star lord until endgame no i enjoy star lord I enjoyed looking at pictures of Star-Lord and Star-Lord <laughs> in the trailer and comic book Star-Lord. I don't know that I love the hero, the, not really a better way to put it, but like the dickhead space pirate that leads this ragtag team. I mean, they are just a bunch of ragamuffins barely ho- like hold together by their threads. And he's really not a great leader. And while we will definitely get to it, I had a lot of very positive emotional reactions to Thor basically coming in and owning the Guardian's the first day out the gate in in Avengers Infinity War. And one of the things that I especially loved about it is that, uh, you know, Star-Lord sort of lets it happen. And the most he does to combat Thor kind of bullying him is start trying to act more like Thor. He stands more like him. He drops his voice to sound more like him. Peter doesn't try to show up Thor with how great he is. He tries to outshow Thor at what he's doing to make Peter look bad. And that definitely informs you about the character's psychology. And, you know, he's he's sort of perennially stuck at this age. So it in some ways makes sense, a lot of his behavior, the way that he's stunted. But another issue that I had with watching the film that ties into my first point is how many references he makes to Earth things when we know he probably doesn't have a lot of contact with modern Earth culture. So it's not like he's he didn't know what Jackson Pollock was when he was eight years old. But when he, he says, if you put on a black light in here, which, again, I don't think an eight year old in, in 1988 would have understood that reference he said if you put on a black light it would look like a jackson pollock painting where did he learn how to say that and how does he understand that fluids are going to show up under the black light yeah that's what i'm saying there's a lot of things that that's what i was trying to get at with this is approached by james gunn in a very an adult with all the references that the eight-year-old could have but now that the eight-year-old's an adult you're not questioning that he has these references i'm not like trying to tear the movie apart or poke holes in something that doesn't really need holes poked in it. I don't hate this movie. I have some issues with the presentation of character. Everyone speaks the exact same. Everyone has the same personality. It does get to be a lot because the only one of them who does wind up with a very different personality is Drax gets dumbed down the nicer he gets. Mm. Like seriously, it's like a sliding scale of stupid. It's a little frightening. Here's what I will say. I did enjoy this movie overall. And I recognize that no Marvel movie is perfect, but we frequently hear the feedback that Guardians is the best of the Marvel franchise. It's really not. There's a lot of gaping holes in here, and you can enjoy it through the gaping holes, but please don't tell me that it's the best written, the best structured, the most thought out. When, like, one of the things that really stuck out at one point, 
Peter is saying how one of the badasses from Earth is John Stamos. And I immediately hopped on my computer. The only thing that Peter Quill could know John Stamos from is at most a season and a half of Full House, soap operas, and a B-movie named Never Too Young to Die, where he played Lance Stargrove, whose secret agent father died at the hands of the evil bisexual villain Velvet Von Ragnar, played by Gene Simmons. That's John Stamos to eight-year-old Peter Quill. I don't like some of the words we just said. No. I I don't... Oh, my God. The 80s. Just the 80s. But, yeah. He could also know him from being an honorary beach boy, but I don't know that the beach boys are badasses really tracks, because he could know him from the Kokomo video. But, again, I kind of feel like... We are playing with time here. We're allowing some jokes that don't make any sense. Ah, and these references, who are, who are they, they for? for? So I definitely, I don't know. I Again, I'm not trying to be like a big, but it's like in Jurassic Park when they said the wrong year that Disneyland opened. Guys, just do your homework for 20 seconds. Ah. So let's get into this damn movie. The opening childhood stuff is just so sad. It's just like stupidly sad. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I liked seeing Logan Huntsberger's dad in stuff. That's pretty cool. He is apparently an actor who James Gunn frequently works with. Well, and then it makes sense because Sean Gunn was on Gilmore Girls with him. Oh, yeah. Interesting. I never thought about that. So everybody knows everybody. Super fun. I do think that one of my problems with the sadness here, it honestly played better before I ever saw the sequel. Mm. That is going to be something I just want to jump in with. When I saw Guardians the first time, I really liked it. And then I saw Guardians, I think I might have even, the second time I ever saw it, might have been the two-movie double feature for the premiere of the second one. And watching them back-to-back really, really, really hurts the first one Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of holes poked in each other by each other. And I unfortunately cannot separate the sort of misogynistic fridging of Star-Lord's mother that they retcon into the second movie for those who don't know what fridging is. Fridging is killing off a female character to further a male character's story. We need to stop doing it. Women are not props to die. So if you have a female character, you should treat them with respect. Ultimately, there are some reveals in the second movie that makes this whole setup much less comfortable and a bit more misogynistic. I'd like to move, though, into the present because I'm going to rip this apart in the second movie. Nah, that's fair. I see where you're coming from. You know, one of the strongest things about, spoiler alert for Buffy season five, killing Buffy's mother with a run-of-the-mill brain tumor in a supernatural world, it made it so much more real. It was something that couldn't really have been prevented. And the fact that Peter's mother, that we thought she died of natural causes in the first film, it's a lot sadder in a way. I agree. It's a lot sadder in every way. And in making her death a machination of a plot point, I feel like they reduced the emotional impact and a lot of the reality that they rely on this movie having to make the contrast of the super fantastic so powerful. To the present, however, or the the present-ish at the beginning of the film, I guess. Well, do we have anything more to say about 1988 or are we ready to move forward 25 years? Honestly, I feel like there isn't much to the 1988 stuff except trying to express the sadness this kid experiences. I do feel that this is just emotional torture porn to set up the film. Hmm, yeah. And then we get that ridiculously cool Star-Lord opening. 
that opening, it's so much flash. It's so much style. It is so much energy. It is so exciting. Yeah, I really love it. And I really love the minor touches of world building that they managed to pack into it. You know, Peter's device that he uses to show holographic images of the people who had once lived on this planet. This film really has a Ten Commandments level uh, commitment to showing huge crowd scenes throughout the entire thing. We have that. We have several scenes on Xandar. The Kiln has enormous crowds. Nowhere has enormous crowds. They're really going right off the gate out of their way to show how much life there is in Marvel Cosmic to establish a world that they can explore further going forward. And they do an amazing job of that. And I think they even managed to play that up with one of the jokes early on in the film. When Star-Lord says his name, he's like, I'm Star-Lord. And they have no idea who he is. There's just that many people in the galaxy. I don't, I don't actually walk away from that, that Star-Lord's a nobody. Because as we're going to find out, everybody wants to fucking kill Star-Lord at this point. Wow. He really is a 100% Han Solo level scoundrel. And people should have heard of him. I definitely agree. And, you know, a note that I made later, we actually get somebody knowing who Drax is later. And to me, that felt more inorganic. It felt like lazy character introduction. We want this person to seem like a badass, so we're going to implement this random person from the kiln knowing him and his backstory so we don't have to, like, have him say it himself. I feel someone not knowing Star-Lord's name makes a lot more sense in terms of the vastness of the galaxy and the level at which Korath as a character would be as Lieutenant to Ronan, who's Lieutenant to Thanos. They also play it up with how rarefied Groot is to people. That people are like, oh my god, Groot, oh my god. And people are like, Rocket, oh my god, oh my god. They do make it clear that the universe is so vast and so expansive that these two things are so rare. They're so rare and they haven't usually been heard of until they are met. So it's, 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 yeah. Now, I need to ask, because I know it's within the first 15 minutes. Yep. Kevo yep. oppressed me with their heterosexuality. <laughs> All right, here's the thing. I don't even find it super offensive. Oppress me! Yeah. I don't even find the heterovisibility in this film too oppressive. Like, I'm not like anti-straight people. My huge problem is I'm told stuff like a character can't be defined by their sexuality. They can't be defined by being gay. So talking about it unnaturally is unnatural. No. Starlord talks about banging chicks throughout this entire films. He talks about three different women in one story when talking about the physical scars on his body. I would like to jump in that once again... So much of this is an eight-year-old's idea of what <laughs> cool adulthood would be. Yes. Like, he's kind of like just like kicking back with his feet up on a couple of blankets he leaves at the bottom of the bed with his hands behind his head, just totally finished. And he's like, good job, my man. He kind of pounds his chest and he's just like, I nailed that girl real good. And she's like laying next to him and she's like, number one, I'm a woman. I'm 33. Number two, I'm here. And you're doing this out loud. And he's like, that's cool, baby. Round two. And in the real world, she would like pour her wine spritzer on him. But in this world, she's like, okay, okay. Lord. Exactly. This is such a little kid's version of what a cool adult would be. And I unfortunately think the problem is I believe James Gunn 
also thinks this is a cool depiction of an adult man. This is not a well-adjusted adult man. And I actually don't have a problem with him not being a well-adjusted adult man, but it's Pickle Rick syndrome. So many people don't get that Pickle Rick is a bad fucking thing, and that's what the show is trying to tell you. Star-Lord isn't a good thing. I hope James Gunn doesn't applaud this sort of behavior, and if he does, then he doesn't understand his own character, and that's also fine. And it's not a bad character. It's just not one that you should want to emulate. He's also not even the worst character. He could be so much more awful, and frankly, 25 years ago, he would have been. I feel like everything with that red Zandarian lady was consensual, and he does eventually drop her back home, and he didn't actually cause her harm. He's just such a fucking child that he forgot when he went on this heist that she was there, because he's got adult ADD or something. And that's fine. Honestly, if we had gotten more of an apology out of him, yes, I would have been more okay with it, but literally the punchline is disrespect this woman and it comes on the heels of what a cool guy he is and it contextualizes behavior that disrespects women as something that is acceptable and attractive especially when it comes out of this guy that they're trying to tell us is a smoother han solo Mm. i'm into it and i'm about it but we need to think about the way the scene is portrayed and the fact that the punchline ends on woman disrespected guy cool I wrote down specifically, I'm not saying he should be all about romantic love. This this just makes him a shitty host. That makes you a shitty host, if nothing else. This person is staying on your ship. Rude. So, now we get a little bit of Yondu, and I am famous for being a little aggressive against Yondu. I feel that in the first movie, they make a lot of, they make a lot of effort to show us that maybe Yondu is not a very good guy, and maybe he is a little abusive, and... Kevo and I read a specific line a little differently. Kevo pointed out that he says over and over again throughout the film, I protected the other Ravagers from eating you. They'd never had Terran before. And Kevo's like like an annoyed parent. He has to say the same thing over and over again. And I'm kind of like, no, like an abuser telling them, I telling the, the victim, I didn't let you die. You owe me your life every minute of the day for the rest of his life it's a disgusting threat and it's still bad parenting but it's not as it's i definitely had a different perspective on it a while back and watching the movie this time i felt there's a lot more bark to yondu than there is bite and not just with peter but with everyone we're not given the impression that he actually hurt the shopkeeper that he threatens later uh the guy probably folded and he probably put his little arrow away and he probably paid for the thing that he walked out of the store with and then put on his dashboard console you know he he's i'm i'm definitely never saying that yondu is a good is a good guy but it's the same way i'm not really saying peter quill is a good guy either absolutely i think i should have presented my point as you softened more than me but i also did soften I do want to take two seconds, and if anybody doesn't agree that that whistle arrow is the fucking sweetest looking fucking thing ever, they're crazy. That is what, that is, like, I, no one would have been like, how the fuck is Hawkeye on the Avengers if he had that thing? Everyone would have been like, yo, have you seen Whistle Arrow? He's gonna hum a tune and you're gonna die. Everyone would be like, oh, Whistle Arrow with his giant fin is back. Look out, Whistle Arrow's here to, because I don't think Yondu is that threatening. He sounds like a dessert you can order at an upscale French bistro. So, anyway... Can we get to the thing that was the first time I laughed out loud in the movie? What's that? The first laugh out loud I have in the entire movie is Ronan. 
which part? Because there's a lot of over-the-top stuff there with with Ronan. Pretty much from the moment Lee Pace with that huge back, good job, man, that fucking back, dude, comes in and then, He talks like this. I am Ronan. And, like, I just, I can't do it. I just can't do it. He sounds like somebody is trying to get a bone out of a dog's mouth while he's continuing to chew on it. I just... Thanos. Infinity Stones. I just don't care for it. Uh, I do think Lee Pace did an amazing job with transforming into a creature of terror at times. But I think one of the things that I don't give Guardians enough either credit or criticism for is that it does feel... Like a space opera, like an old school space serial in many ways, like the original yeah. Star Wars was. And he really is just such an over-the-top villain. And I guess, and I mean this positively, there's actually a positive statement on the film. I guess if you take out the racism and the homophobia and the transphobia from those over-the-top serialized space villains, all you have is the screaming and grunting. Yes. All you have is this performance. So in many ways... I do need to give Lee Pace an enormous amount of credit for bringing to life a role that has normally been problematic and he brings it to life in no problematic ways. I do just think it's not a great character. I feel Ronan is a character very similar to, I can't think of what Chris Eccleston's character's name was. Malekith. Malekith, Who's thank supposed you. to be funny and like charm okay but so in this in the mcu i feel like their characters are very comparable and i think at least lee pace did a better job bringing this heavily cg and prosthetic villain who is generally very one-dimensional to life in a way that i enjoyed it's just i i don't love characters like that and i know you don't either you're not a fan of davros from doctor who you don't really love you know over-the-top, dramatically, criminally insane, I'm going to destroy everyone, no reason, no sympathetic side villains. With one exception, if you laugh the whole time you do it, I'm super into it. I don't know what that's about, but like Arcade is like my favorite villain of all time. Arcade from the X-Men is like seriously my all-time favorite comic book supervillain. No lie. I love Mojo. I guess I just like the weird X-Men villains. All right, that's fine. No, but do you know what? I think that's because for those characters, this is clearly something that brings them joy. And you can understand that. When it's these bloated, rageful, characters, um, you're not even enjoying what you're doing, clearly. You're just being an enormous asshole. And, like... Bullseye is another great example of a character who is just criminally insane and kind of just to be criminally insane at times. And I can even get behind Bullseye. Bullseye is, you know, one of the most perfect foils to the most perfect hero ever. So I can understand when you're just crazy. But Ronan is just like, scream, scream, swing the war hammer. Scream, scream, swing the war hammer. It makes me tired. It's also, I feel there's a huge problem in this film of... It doesn't make us care about Thanos, and it kind of needed to for a lot of this plot to work. Ultimately, the plot of this film hinges completely around the Infinity Stones, but it's so in the background and so not clear that it kind of muddles the whole plot. And I'm so glad you brought up Thanos, because that brings us to the plot of this movie, which is double-cross the double-cross the double-cross to double-cross the double-cross, starring 
everyone who hates Thanos. That's the plot of this movie. These are not the Guardians of the Galaxy. These are the Revengers of Thanos. We have Drax, who will be joining the team because he wants to get revenge on Thanos. We have Gamora, who wants revenge on Thanos. We have Star-Lord, who is going to ultimately be the... I fucking... I, anyway. I can't get anyway. over I can't get over it. So, I feel like we get such a weak introduction to Gamora and Nebula. Their introduction feels like an afterthought in so many ways. Both of these characters become such central figures to this franchise that their scenes define the second movie for me. Mm. And I think Karen Gillan's performance of Nebula takes her from an unlikable, irritating, one-dimensional villain a la Ronan in this film to someone dynamic and powerful for multiple films to come. But their introduction felt like two much less important characters being introduced. And I can accept that for Nebula, or maybe not, because she plays a huge role in the comics. In Anyway, um, I can accept that for Nebula here, but not Gamora here. I feel like we get a better understanding of Gamora through Star-Lord's eyes more frequently than not. Yeah. And this is a humongous problem for me. I would really appreciate it if the Marvel Universe would please stop defining women by the way men near them see them. I feel like Gamora is forever in the shadow of the storyline of Thanos and her relationship mm. with Star-Lord. I don't feel we get a genuine understanding of who Gamora is outside of the way other men view her, except when we get a lot of her in Nebula, and then it's two young women warriors ruled by their daddy issues. And I don't think that it's because Gamora is not a strong character herself. It's that I don't feel that she is given the proper focus, whether it's the writing or it's simply Zoe Saldana uh, and her performance. Uh, I, I do think that Gamora is a strong character, but, you know, you made a really good point that we don't get any focus on Gamora. She's introduced at about, like, 12 or 13 minutes into the film, and we don't really start to understand who she is until the kiln scene, which is almost half an hour in. So we've had the character for 20 minutes before we really start to get a sense of who she is. I also feel, to bring us to the next point, that Rocket and Groot just walk into this movie. Yes. That's a really cool comic technique. That's a really interesting thing where people just walk into the comic page. And I feel like that's what they were going for. But Groot gets a magical pass that people like Chewbacca get. Groot's lack of language allows him to contribute emotionally and powerfully to many scenes. There's an X-Men character similar named Dupe, who I am obsessed with. And that kind of character can work for me. And in fact, Groot works for me here. Rocket, I could have used more introduction to Rocket so that later on his origin doesn't come out like the most annoying sob story feel bad for me I've ever heard. I get that. I do. I don't feel that. I, I like the way that you said it's like they walk into the movie because... You know, as much as I enjoy the characters and their connection and this team, they are the least connected in any way whatsoever. And it would be a lot to expect Rocket and Groot to have a connection to Thanos that would make them make that the unifying thing. You know, this film takes place probably over the course of a couple of days. It's hard to feel where Rocket and Groot became so dedicated to this cause out of nowhere. Because I don't believe... There actually are any real turning points for this team. I want to kind of... Okay, I appreciate so much of the stuff with the chase for the orb. It's a lot of fun. It's a great chase sequence. In fact, I don't think I ever really have negative criticism 
for any James Gunn fight sequence in this film, with the exception of, I get a little bored during the final battle. But I believe almost every other fight moment James Gunn puts in this movie is perfect. So I, I don't even want to touch on too much because I don't have too much to say. So if you do, absolutely. I'm really hungry to talk about how the kiln was basically shot so that everybody could understand what the plot of the movie was. Huh. Uh, yes. Everybody could quickly understand that this is now a team. Oh, look, it's the last member. We get something we've never had in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which is a prison breakout sequence. and Which we... obviously laid the groundwork for Guardians of the Galaxy mission breakout to be the attraction that they put in Disneyland. Oh, 100%. And I think it also tested the ground for another stylistically visual unique director with Edgar Wright providing Ant-Man as a heist movie. Mm. So I do think there is not much to say negative about either the chase for the orb or the kiln escape. I do want to note that I think that these yellow jumpsuits got these Kill Bill onesies got worked mm. into way too much of the promotional for outfits they're in for, I think, a grand total of 20 minutes. About 22 minutes. Yes, you are correct. And I have to give it this. This is a stylistic... This is, <clears throat> And I have to give it this. This is a stylistic dream the way no Whedon film could ever hope to be. Whedon captures emotion in a powerful perspective. This is a dynamic, stylistic blockbuster. Yes. No, absolutely. I think that a lot of the stylistic moments are really amazing. From the very beginning, the way that the Guardians logo splashed on the screen on that beat in Come and Get Your Love, just the timing of it and the pacing, I do see visually where James Gunn's dedication to music, to style choices, getting the perfect shot definitely does come across. It's more like a lot of the content of it is where the problem comes in. A lot of the exposition is clunky. There's, there's still cute moments here and there. I love every time someone fumbles with the orb, especially now in 2019 when we know everything we do about the Infinity Stones, and you're like, holy fucking shit, that's a nuke. You just dropped a nuke. I love what you're saying, that it's stylistically always gorgeous, but yes. that a lot of it doesn't work. That actually brings me to my next major issue in the movie. The Yondu talking over the guy scene, where he's just making nonsense baby noises over the guy trying to talk, just exemplifies why I don't care for Yondu. And a type of humor that I find prevalent throughout these films that actually does detract from the narrative. I think that makes Yondu not scary. Yes. That makes Yondu non-threatening. That actually then makes me think that Peter works with babies. Because the thing is, he immediately pulls out, you know, what would be the Earth equivalent of a gun or a knife and threatens the guy, but he doesn't do anything with it either. The stylistic weapon that makes James Gunn's work beautiful. Yeah. If you take a step back and realize whether he's threatening the guy or not, he does nothing. It recontextualizes the baby talk thing as, once again, Yandu is not as threatening as he would like you to believe. Which then maybe makes a lot of the threats of the movie not as threatening. So you can't have it both ways. All of your bad guy, anti-hero, good guy, anti-bad guy, hero guy, bad guy people can't be fumblingly, powerfully, stupidly, dynamically, geniusly feeble. I just don't know how else to get there, but it plays a little too much of both sides. Yeah, I definitely see that. And frankly, on that topic, I don't really feel narratively it makes any sense whatsoever for Drax to join the Guardians. Yes, he wants revenge on people that they're after, but 
he just sort of tags along and it's really awkward and uncomfortable. And then they're just sort of saddled with this guy. And it's more than just saddled. It's like everything starts to add up to where I can't figure out how any of these teams can shoot straight. And they all hate each other still so much. When we transition into the next bit with Nowhere, they're all still so at each other's throats that I'm like, why? It's it's too much to believe that they're going to be as powerfully connected within the next 24 to 72 hours that they can control the Power Stone by holding hands. And that does, of course, bring us to the Infinity Stones and the moment that literally makes me shout, No! Bad! No! What part is that, Nico? First, we should talk about the love sequence I was about to skip because it's so forgettable. Yeah, you know, I literally only root for a couple like Gamora and Peter because I like both of them enough and I don't think either one of them is too terrible a match for the other, but I I don't think there's any strong or compelling explanation given as to why Peter is so obsessed with her. I agree. It actually comes off like, in many ways, sort of the scoundrel that he is. He has to collect her. She has to be the next thing he gets. Oh, that's Thanos' daughter. I'm not saying he's trying to tame her exactly, but there is some very... Oh, hey, pretty space lady. It's more like she's a manic pixie green girl. I agree. There is some stuff that I don't love to it because there is no actual reason for them to be attracted to each other other than they both have bodies. Yeah, yeah. And I think that Gamora, at least, even up through Infinity War, is aware that, you know, I think by Infinity War, she's come to care for Peter more and more because they've just known each other longer. But I think she's even aware that Peter's love for her is a little bit obsessive and like not too based in reality. Now that brings us to what I'm not crazy about, and that's the collector scene. I really resent the shop woman that grabs the stone and explodes. Here's why I resent it. That is such a pivotal moment in the plot of the film to randomly put in this little bit, because we had seen that woman before in the Thor The Dark World tag. Yes. So James Gunn had directed that. And so that was purposely established so that we would see her before she explodes. But that's not enough to make me accept that this character should have this central a role in the plot of the film. Because it comes on the heels of a scene that I wish I felt I love this scene and I want to discuss everything the collector tells them. But it is really hard to get to that point without talking about how out of nowhere this is. (laughs) Out of nowhere. Here's what I'll say. I don't dislike it within the context of the film. And I think this servant woman being lured to grab the power stone to take down her abusive employer or slave owner, for all we know. I like it because it also feeds further into the concept of Loki being controlled by the Mind Stone. These these infinity gems, these infinity stones, they have influence over people. But when we watched a brief recap of Guardians of the Galaxy, we got to this scene and it talks about how she causes this explosion. And I realized when you're watching a four minute recap of the film, you're like, who the fuck is this person? What context do they have over anything having to do with the plot? It really is completely random to the plot. And it's not that things like that don't happen. It certainly is very jarring. 
And it's a lot. It's a huge plot moment to give such a minor character. Especially, okay, here's one way I can see why they did it. Perhaps, just perhaps, they wanted to show immediately after explaining what the Infinity Stones are, just how powerful one is, but we already have known how powerful Infinity Stones are. So it can't be that. Maybe he's saying he wanted to show it in his own film. Well, that's the plot of the rest of the fucking movie. This scene is just really annoying, and we get a cool peek at the Celestials. We see the fucking Celestials, which are a huge deal for Marvel Comics, and it just boils down to a scene of a random woman exploding. Oh, uh, yeah, I really did love the Collector's PowerPoint presentation about what Infinity Stones are. That was incredibly helpful. Oh, and see, I saw it as a Google slide. Ah, I'm just super dated. The future, man. We couldn't come up with an in-between noise, so here's me singing for Guardians 1. Also, there's so much less Nebula and Ronan in this movie than I thought. Yeah, there definitely is. I clocked it. It's an hour, one minute, and ten seconds when Ronan arrives at nowhere to come after the Guardians. That's literally halfway through the whole film. Would you believe if I told you when Ronan shows up at nowhere there's still an hour left in this film? Honestly, no, because I feel like the final battle is like 28 minutes. Mm. And in my head, the final battle is like... 45 minutes so i would think that there's way more time left but in all seriousness though that actually sounds about right to this movie's pacing this movie's lee pacing (laughs) you know i know you mentioned that you really felt bored by the climactic battle scene but honestly for me this is the one that took me out of the action i felt like it was way too extended Some of the tricks were a little bit too silly. There's this moment where Peter, in his little zipping around ship, uses its claw arms to reach into another ship and control it using the arms, which is literally exactly what Scarlett Johansson did as Black Widow during the Battle for New York when she jumps on a Chitauri glider and she uses the guy's body to control it. So not only is it a repeated gag, but I just find it very hard to believe that he would have that sort of fine motor control to control the other ship. So I just, I ended up being bored. Yeah, I don't blame you. I think everything about this chase sequence ultimately results in emotion that I don't buy. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree. It's what we were saying earlier about how we don't get why Peter is obsessed with Gamora, so why are we so emotionally invested when he gives up his mask for her? On another note as well, I feel really bad, but I wish that they could come up with a better way to film zero gravity than underwater filming because I honestly, especially in this scene on Chris Pratt's face, it was really clear that this was filmed underwater and not in a vacuum. And obviously you can't film in a fucking vacuum. I'm not saying I understand there's limitations, but like it literally felt like he was in a fucking pool. Whole cast of Avengers 5's heart explodes when vacuum filming for space scene goes horribly wrong. I'm just saying, like, you know... I do completely agree with you. This scene doesn't look quite right. And it brings us to the point of the movie where I kind of start to check out on the plot, where it's just all-powerful Ronin, smashy, smash, smash. It also, okay, so Ronin's like, I have a stone and now I'm so powerful, right? But here's my thing about that. Here's my thing. Thanos literally had a stone and gave it to someone who at least considered himself a god, whether or not he considered Loki a god to get another stone and 
if Thanos is sending someone to get a stone, I have to assume he believes there is no situation under which he will not best them, because there was a possibility of a guy who considered himself a god having two stones in his possession, and Thanos just assumed Loki would turn them over. So I cannot imagine, even with the stone he was sent to get, Thanos views Ronan as a threat. I definitely agree with all of that. I think a huge problem this film presents for me is, you know, I know, I know he ultimately gets there and he gets the glove and he gets the gems and he, and, and I, we saw it, we saw the movie, but this presents a picture of Thanos where literally everyone close to him is either incompetent with the way that Loki failed against the Avengers and the way the other is easily dispatched by Ronan even before he gets the power stone. Everyone's either incompetent or they are immediately ready to turn on Thanos, whether it's his high-ranking lieutenant of Ronin who turns on him the moment he gets a power stone, or literally his own quote-unquote children. And that's this is the first real picture that we are being given of Thanos as the major antagonist of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and it's that no one likes him or wants him to succeed. It really does make it hard to understand just how Thanos did ultimately come to take over the universe, other than the Black Order helping him out. I'm not sure how he could have accomplished this. I mean, yeah, we're saying he is so powerful, don't get me wrong, but it really is that everybody in the entire universe hates Thanos. Everyone hates Thanos. Everyone. Everyone. Now, this is the point where inexplicably the Guardians all decide they're a band of brothers who are going to die together, and I a little bit roll my eyes because I do not believe this is earned. What's funny is the only person who I felt started to show character growth at this point of the film was Drax. I don't know exactly what it was that got through to him. We watched this movie once for the podcast. I might have to watch it a few more times to really, like, think about it. But it's something about Rocket's speech to him after Drax calls Ronin and Rocket giving him shit for it and being like, you're going to get everyone killed for your revenge and you're an asshole. Drax really turns a corner and starts to soften and feel dedicated to helping these other people, even as he still seeks his own revenge. It continues to go throughout the film when we see him giving the speech to everyone of saying that you're my friend, and he calls Gamora a whore and she yells at him, so his response is to take out someone else who's worse to her as proof that he cares about her. He definitely starts to show growth. But it's one character out of all of the Guardians, and I still don't understand why Rocket and Groot are dedicated, other than that Groot is a nice guy. I don't get why Peter is dedicated, other than he wants to bang Gamora. Actually, Peter is the character who most easily removes out of the entire thing. Peter is the character who I don't understand is why is with the team. I feel like Peter could have been Adam Warlock in an earlier draft. Mm. I feel like Peter could have been almost, uh, it could have been Nova. Nova is a much more prominent important, powerful character in the comics. It's not just the Nova Corps. There is a Nova that we pay a lot of attention to. And I wonder if someone else originally led this movie because Peter offers so little to the plot. But speaking of Nova, we at least do get the Nova Corps. Yeah, there's actually a hugely star-studded cast among the Nova Corps. We see Glenn Close, John C. Riley, uh, Sharif Atkins from ER, Brendan Fair from Roswell. Also, the character of Nova Omega is played by Peter Serafinowicz, I hope I'm saying that correctly, who some people who are Parks and Rec fans might recognize as the Lord or Duke, whatever he was, that that Andy becomes friends with in 
season six of Parks and Recreation to help facilitate him being written out of the story for a brief period of time. And with their help comes the big final battle against Ronan. Yeah, I looked at my timestamps and it's about 22, 20, 21 and a half minutes of the film is this final battle. It's a lot. It feels like a really long time. Part of it is that it's another one of those everything they do that should be the thing that saves them yes. ultimately isn't good enough and they're all going to die anyway. And this just starts to be too much all the time. It keeps feeling like it's over and then not being over. That's part of the problem. And as beautiful as the moment of Groot forming that wicker bassinet around them. A whisker basket? He, he formed that beautiful whisker basket around them with the fireflies. And it's a lovely moment, but it unbelievably slows down the drama of the scene. And then you have to pick it back up after you're grieving for this character that everyone in the fandom loves. And it's just... These ups and downs. And then even when the battle's over, there's still a friggin' epilogue. It's like when I wanted two first-class tickets to Greece, and instead I got two tickets to a first-grade production of Greece 2. Yeah, but I heard it's a really great production. <laughs> These references. Who are they for? So, I do think that it's too much build-up and drop-down. Build-up and drop-down. I love when Star-Lord is like, Mwahaha, we just hit him with everything we had, and it didn't do anything, and then... You know, Rocket crashes a chip into him, and that's cool. But there's too many look away, get hit, look away, get hit, look away, get hit. Ronan is maybe the dumbest bad guy, because it seems like all you need to do to, to hit Ronan really hard is just make him look the other way for one minute. I do love smashing the Warhammer. No lie, no joke. That's really clever. You can't destroy the stone, although they do take a really big chance blowing up the thing holding the stone, as we will come to find. But I believe their interpretation is much similar to what mine is. You know, Ronan's not holding the stone. He's holding something that has the stone on it, which is why he doesn't blow the fuck up. I imagine that if Ronan was in physical contact with the stone, he would not be able to control it any more than anyone else, at least not for an extended period. So do then we think that's part of why Thanos needs the glove? Yeah, I mean, probably. Really interesting. I do think the moment where Star-Lord gets his hand on the stone and he's holding it and it's destroying him so Gamora goes in and Drax and Rocket. Obviously, Groot just can't be in the moment, which is one of the only things that makes that not a great cast shot. Groot just can't be in the moment. But it's interesting the amount of setup they're trying to do for what the stones are and for what Star-Lord is. And I really do appreciate that. But there is something so cheap and 90s and honestly, very where James Gunn comes from about, You can't do that! You're mortal! We're the Guardians of the Galaxy, bitch. Which, no, don't like it. Don't like that use of bitch, actually. As someone who uses the word bitch more than he would like, I can see where Peter Quill wouldn't mean it as an aggressive term, but I can also see where Peter Quill would mean that as an aggressive term that I have a problem with. I painted a picture in this episode of a man that I really feel goes both ways as far as that is concerned. And I think part of the issue with the scene for me as well is it's a lot of unearned emotional manipulation. I remember being moved by the scene of the Nova Corps sacrificing themselves and their energy web not working out. But, you know, with a few years context removed, I'm like, literally Sandar's entire police force just died, it looks like. No wonder that they were sitting ducks for when Thanos showed up. And frankly, 
were we really made to care very much about them? Nova Omega calls out for Rocket Raccoon as he's dying, and my thought was, when did those two guys fucking meet? Why are they even talking to each other? Really unfortunate, because I feel like the Zandarians get the short end of the stick over and over again. Mm. Their death is always the less important death of a larger amount of death. It, the Asgardians definitely get all the attention, and then that's all erased by the snap. In fact, it's really ridiculous, because I feel in many ways, at some point, Someone should have just sat down with Thanos and been like, hey, dude, so you know, you've killed so many people. You've killed like a third of everyone alive. You're really close to balancing the scales on your own, man. If you just keep up with this, you won't need those stones. And to be honest, they do not go with anything you own. Mm, I see that. The movie just kind of comes to a screeching halt again. So many of the Marvel movies have all this action. And then all of a sudden there's this moment where the action's over. And everybody just sort of talks about the adventure they just had, and they all set up their part for the next movie, and everybody who's still alive gets to wink at the camera one last time. We get a couple of zippy zany one-liners, and then we trudge toward the mid-credits and post-credits scene. Have I missed anything really important to the plot of this film? No, I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the usual Marvel film denouement. We have the moment of peter opening his package from his mother and i <laughs> oh right it turns out the thing that peter quill has been begging everyone in the universe to call him is the thing his mommy called him my little star lord how is that not more embarrassing to like not just star lord but to a writer who's writing this like heroic figure how do you not see that by doing that you're just writing an incredibly stunted man child my God, I'm glad that's not how I got my superhero name. If I had to be the Nicolasio, I would be in deep trouble. A little bit, yeah. Well, I kind of have to hit one of the things about this post credit scene and this mid credit scene. Oh, first, though, we need to point out something Kevo said. I never would have considered this, but Kevo's got a really great eye for form, and I think it's really interesting. You know, as we were watching this, I was taken aback when the first thing that we see when the film goes to black is the Guardians of the Galaxy will return. That's not something you generally put at the front of a credit sequence. Even with Captain America, it's said at the end of the opening credits with, uh, I believe, a Thor hat attack. It's, it's, it's just not done. And it... Everything about the way that this film closed out and then immediately following that message with the credit sequence, that's this cute, fun, happy thing that I'm sure they knew fandom was going to go crazy for. You don't film a sequence like that and make it that cute. You don't build an Ewok if you don't want people to find it adorable and want to come back for more of that. And that's such a strange thing to tag before the credits as if they wanted to make sure and immediately get people's attention with these things. Because Guardians of the Galaxy was never guaranteed a second film, and yet they said the Guardians will return and didn't say where. No matter what, it's likely that we would have seen a return of these figures ultimately in Infinity War. But they wanted to get you hype about the potential of seeing these characters again anywhere. Especially because of the rumors that were circulating these characters at the time. This was an out-the-gate hit from, from nowhere. No one had any expectation of that. So there was a lot of rumors that Hulk was going to crash on their ship much the way Thor did in Infinity War. Yes. There had been rumors that Hulk was going to do that and the planet Hulk substitute wasn't going to be Ragnarok, but was instead going to be 
Guardians 2. That's why Ragnarok is even pretty funny. That's why Ragnarok comes out right around Guardians 2. It's all an interesting web that kind of comes together, but the Guardians really had no expectation of returning and then ultimately did. It's really interesting. We get a little dancing Groot as the mid-credits, and then the post-credits is a really irritating Howard the Duck appearance. I love Howard the Duck. I love the fact that he can break the fourth wall. He's super cool. He's super great. He deserved better than this weird shoved-in inclusion. That's fair. It was a weird cameo to include. It feels like it's not going to go anywhere, so why do it? But at the same time, you know, I'm sure it made some people happy. I feel bad for the people it made unhappy, though, apparently. I was thrilled that they immediately credited Steve Gerber the second he appeared. I have long said that I feel comic creators are not credited enough in this world, so I would make sure to do the credits at the top of every single X's for podcast. It's important to know who did what. All right, Kevo, that takes me through my part of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 1. Did you have anything you wanted to say before we move toward the next film? You know, like I keep saying, I don't hate this movie. It definitely does have a lot of flaws. And in the context of MCU.HTML, I think as far as introducing us to Thanos and the larger narrative of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it's very weak. I'm not sure where the fault of that lies, whether it's, you know, James Gunn not wanting his film taken over by that narrative or it just wasn't focused enough to be properly seated but the the only thing we're told about thanos in this film is that he's the most powerful being in the universe and yet both of his daughters and his high-ranking lieutenant were ready to turn on him in a heartbeat and believed that he could be taken down otherwise why would these people who are so close to him turn on him if they didn't think it was possible so it's really ultimately an odd way to introduce this threat and i also think it sets up a lot of the foibles that are going to plague Age of Ultron. Both Ronin and Thanos are kind of guilty of the same sort of over-the-top dumbness mm. that I feel like Ultron is plagued by. I'm going to be honest. I give Age of Ultron a weird sliding score. I'm a little bit kinder to it than I should be, but I'm also really critical of it. I think most of the things from it are better after it. I think okay. they did more with Scarlet Witch after the fact. I feel like more came from this movie that helped motivate Civil War. I enjoy Age of Ultron, but as we're going to discuss, I probably would have enjoyed the five-hour Whedon cut way more. In that regard, it sounds like what you're saying is generally a sentiment we've felt about the entire Phase 2 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We like a lot of things that come out of it, but ultimately don't really feel that it bears weight on the main narrative of the series as a whole. It's almost like the first phase designed the pattern work, the lattice work that the universe was going to traverse. The second phase defined how those personalities were going to come together. And the third phase is the realization of both. Yeah, I definitely see that. And the problem is that makes the middle piece less enjoyable. Unfortunately, for a lot of people, I can still enjoy stories for what they are, even when they seem to, for lack of a better phrase, waste my time, especially if it feeds into a bigger narrative that I do enjoy. But when you think about this as a billion-dollar industry, you really shouldn't be wasting a single minute, a single dollar, a single second of your audience's attention span. If you, As I've said before, if you break down the MCU into 40-minute increments, by the end of phases one through three, you're going to have a 66-episode television series. That's a lot. That's a lot. And so wasting any episodes in between there, 
you could have made a tighter story. And speaking of stories, if you're a fan of our work, you definitely want to check out our awesome comic, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com. And through the end of February, you can come show support on our Kickstarter for our first ever Riot Squad Pride Pin Enamel Button. You definitely want to check it out. You can get the link over at our website or on Cage Club. And check out our comic, again, at KidRiotComics.com. Kevin, where can everybody find you? As always, you can find me over on Twitter or Instagram at KevOReilly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also catch both of us over on X's for Podcast, where we, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, take a look at the X-Men comic book franchise. Or you can catch me with my best buddy Chris on Now and Again, where we look at the Now That's What I Call Music series, as well as a number of other amazing shows here on the network. Don't forget to check out CageClub.me's amazing Patreon, where you can help pick the shows they do next. You can also check me out on Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Okay, well, until we're ready to check out the Age of Ultron and discover all sorts of new intelligent life. We'll see ya. Woohoo!